Welcome to The Nest Podcast, a place where we have down-to-earth, uplifting conversations about women's health, healing, our inherent feminine wisdom, and the magic that happens when we decide to be the hero of our life and not the victim of it. Here we'll explore a wide range of topics, from holistic nutrition and metabolic health to balancing your hormones, to mind-body medicine and how intuition, spirituality, and consciousness are revolutionizing health and healing. On this episode, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Katherine Kremblinski. In addition to helping mamas trained to be MDs, mama doctors, Kat also staunchly advocates for sober motherhood, having quit drinking herself in early January 2021 after years of socially acceptable drinking habits that were ruining her mental health and ability to parent. Kat and I do a deep dive into the topic of alcohol and motherhood as she shares a particular sobering moment when she decided that her relationship with alcohol needed to change. So sit back, open your heart and mind, and get ready for a dose of inspiration to motivate you on your healing journey. Let's dive in. Okay. Hi, Kat. Hi. (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) Welcome to the Nest Podcast. So nice to see your face. It's so nice to see your face. Oh my goodness. For those listening, Kat and I went to school together. We were in naturopathic school together and Feels graduated like together. So long ago. Kat, I feel like it was so long ago because yeah, it was like so, uh, oh, yeah, 10, 10 years, years 10 years now. Wow. Time okay. flies. But you know, what's funny. Over you know, what doesn't dissipate with time is the feeling of panic when I walk up the stairs of CCNM. <laughs> That is a trauma response that I think oh my God, good. Adaptation that we run for life. <laughs> well, anyone who has felt the pressure of school, I think can yeah. understand that. You don't necessarily have to have done a professional or doctorate program. Yeah, gosh, we, we were traumatized together and, and <laughs> we went through a very intense program. Well, now and here we are a few kids later. Yeah, here we are a decade later having this conversation I think this conversation will be provocative for some, but I think it's a really important one. And so I'm going to ask you to take it away by telling us a little bit about you, Kat, and about your story. And yeah, we're going to jump into this this choice that you made to give up alcohol and why. And we're going to talk a little bit about mommy culture, the mommy mm. wine culture and alcohol and the role that it plays in that and yeah, ultimately we'll get to reclaiming the sacred view of the family and our roles as mothers within it. So how's that just for a, a preface? Just a, just a small topic. <laughs> yeah, just a um, small one. Just, just a little. Just well, a little. you know, I, so I'm, as you are, I'm also from Nova Scotia and mm-hmm. I grew up actually in a very naturopathically minded home. My mom owned a health food store for 47 years before she just actually recently closed it. And she was my doctor growing up. My dad was a very avid runner. So health was very much top of mind in our home. And neither of my parents drank alcohol. My dad drank before my brother and I were, were born, but I don't ever remember seeing him drink, neither of them. When I was younger, I remember the first time I tried alcohol, but perhaps I'll, I'll preface by saying, yes, I'm a naturopath. I'm a mom of three. I live in Toronto and I have really kind of stepped into this role as mother for mothers. I don't know how else to put it. I just feel like in this role, it's so nuanced. It's so complex. It's so challenging. I never like to say it's hard because it's that has such a negative pressure field filled connotation. It's challenging. It pushes us to our limits. It shines a light on a lot of our insecurities and our own triggers and our own childhood stuff. And so I really, I felt like, especially over the last few years, whatever I have felt I've needed, other moms must need it too. And so that's been my mission to really share that. And that includes re-examining my relationship with alcohol. So back to what I was originally saying. The first time I remember ch- uh, trying alcohol was with a childhood friend and her parents had alcohol. <laughs> and it was one of those mini, you know, like mini bar bottles of screech. Oh my God. I mean, you might as well jump in. Drinking moonshine right away. So is that what try- Screech is? Is Screech moonshine? I, it's if it's not, um, it's close to it. Yeah, it's it's like I don't know, ninety proof or something. It's absurd. 
And I remember trying it and being like, this is horrible. Like it tastes the way that nail polish remover smells, right? Like it just has yeah. that. But it was, it, it was just of interest to me, especially because I didn't see it at home. So I'm like, what, what is this all about? And then I, you know, once you get to junior high school, you really start, you start questioning. How old were you? Oh, How that was, that was young. That was probably like seven or eight. What? Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, but wow. it, and it okay. wasn't like we got drunk. It was like, we tried it. We're like, this is disgusting. Why would okay. anyone drink yeah. this? Um, but that was kind of my first foray into some sort of realization that it existed. Right. Um, and my aunts and uncles and stuff drank, but it just never, it just never kind of came into my periphery. And then junior high hits, you're insecure, you're trying to find your way in the world. And, uh, I found my way, uh, to some of some really great friends, but you know, everyone was experimenting. They were a little bit older and, I, I didn't want to be left out. So I engaged and then it just became part of my shtick, right? It was part of who I was. Cat can drink like a fish. I mean, and you're amongst it. When you and I talked about this before, it's very much part of that, the, the identity fabric of an East coaster, right? Like you're, you've got the sailor vibes. And I used to say after one or two drinks, I'd actually take on like a sailor lilt. Like I'd have this somewhat of an accent. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because I just think of like, <laughs> guys, if you could, those listening, like Kat is this gorgeous woman, like very <laughs> slight woman with like, you know, like blonde hair. Just, I just <laughs> the thought of you swearing like a sailor with, um, like a Captain Jack Sparrow. Yeah. <laughs> it just makes me laugh. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> no, but it was, it's, it is so funny and it's, and, it, and it's hilarious because how I had identified in that role is really very much a caricature. Yeah. And, you know, Drunk Cat was social and she formidable in a room and everyone liked her until a certain point. And so it was very much, you know, part of my identity. Lots of mistakes made in the, you know, being intoxicated, things that, you know, I would never have done if I was sober. And, you know, lots of friendships, I think, were formed during university, especially that I would never have engaged in. And that's all very clear to me now because those people are no longer in my life. And it did bring a lot of toxic energy, a lot of toxic feminine competitive energy, which is a natural part of that stage of life. But alcohol just fuels all of those insecurities. And for me, definitely that was the case. So then I moved to Toronto and it even further instilled that stereotype. Oh, you're from the East coast. So the party thing came into it. I remember waking up one morning in residence at the Canadian college of naturopathic medicine. And I was wearing one sock. Uh, there was like, I couldn't remember how I'd gotten back there. I had been downtown, which is for anybody who doesn't know Toronto, that's about a 45 minute cab ride, an hour and a half subway ride. I don't know how I got back. There was like crumpled up receipts next to me. I'd spent $400 as a student. And I, and I, I had flashes of, you know, I'll buy your drinks and shots for everyone. And that's kind of how I, I, that's how I lived in that sphere. And of course, everyone thought I was really fun, but there was so much anxiety, like a wave of it would come over me in the, you know, the, the next few days. And there, the, if anyone here engages in drinking, you know, that feeling, whether it's from the past or maybe it's even present, you almost have to, it's like it, the hair of the dog is the, the, the phrase we used to use, but that literally means using something to combat the result that it caused in the first place like it's a drug to to cure the the ailment of the drug like it's so it, it became very much like this very vicious cycle I didn't know very many people here so it was something to do and that's pretty much how it continued I through my 20s I met my husband he was also a partier in terms of drinking so we'd all go out together and listen it was so much fun but then when I became a mom I realized it just didn't there were so many problematic components to it. It was when I, my daughter, who was probably, she was four-ish, three and a half, four-ish at the time, said, mommy, I know where you hide your wine. And there was a cupboard above where I would make prepared dinner. And I would have my glass of wine there. Hiding it, maybe. My husband doesn't drink. He never, he doesn't drink much anymore either, but he, he, um, he never drank at home. Like hopefully we were friends or something and he would have a couple of glasses of wine or something, but 
And so I would drink because I was kind of embarrassed. No one else was drinking, but I wanted to drink. And I could cut it out for a month or two, but it came, it would slowly start creeping back. Okay, well, I'll just have one. Okay, well, maybe I'll have one two days a week. And then all of a sudden it was like one or two glasses a night. And getting to the point where I'd go to a, a friend's house for dinner and I'd bring my own bottle just in case they didn't have any. And also when you bring your own bottle, it doesn't look impolite to say, I'm going to crack this bottle of wine within the first five minutes of arriving, right? You can't be like, uh, yo, it, we've been here for five years. Can you open a bottle? <laughs> because that looks prob- that looks like a problem versus, oh, I brought this bottle. Why don't I open it up for us? So there were covert ways that I was working with a problem. And so, and, you know, feeling that anxiety, perhaps falling asleep while I was reading a story to the kids. So, because I had had a, maybe one or two glasses of wine, I was groggy. And I find myself writing this line, even telling you the story of, well, I want to share what it was like for me, but I don't want to make it seem like I was a maniac. But mm-hmm. the, pro- the, the, the matter of the fact is, is that it was a problem for me. It is a problem for me. And that's why I choose not to engage. We've been we've been conditioned in society to see alcoholism, to see, you know, relationship with alcohol as being very black or white. You either are you can't control yourself, you have you're not functioning society, you have bottles hidden everywhere, or you're able to deal with it and you have like everyone in normal society can do. And I just don't think it's that black and white. I think there's a spectrum and you know yourself. You know if you have a dysfunctional relationship with a person, a place a substance, a habit. So that's where I had to get to. That's where I got to before something clicked for me that said, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And I've got little ones, little eyes on me. And this is not the way I want them to remember me. I don't want them to think this is normal. And I I just didn't want to continue with it. So I made the decision in January of January 11th of 2021 to stop. And I haven't had a drink since, and I don't intend to again. Amazing. So it's two years sober. Two years. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. There's so much in what you said, and I'm, I was writing down points that I want to go back to. First, just as a side note, I wanted to say the stereotype of East Coasters being alcoholics, I felt that hardcore, not necessarily around other East Coasters, but when I left especially like when I lived, I lived in Toronto for like over 15 years. And um, anyone, you know, if I said, oh, I was originally from Nova Scotia, one of the main stereotypes was that we were all drunks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, it's A, not true. It's very insulting. However, there is that, you know, carefree party pub kind of yes. culture Yes, that I think like stems, the, it stems from- It's like from, Kitchen Kaylee. It's like, yeah, it's, it's exactly. like- you just assume that that's what life is like. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. The, and again, like I'm not trying to lay blame <laughs> with any particular, you know, culture or whatever, but it was, it's the, the East coast culture is kind of this mixing pot of like Celtic, like, you know, mm-hmm. the Scots and the Irish and the English and some French mixed in there. Like, you know, so, you know, and drinking is very much an integral part of many cultures, right? It's like, you know, at the end of the day, you have a drink to wind down. Or you go to the pub and you have a pint or, you know, like it's very much integrated. But yeah, I remember feeling that stereotype very strongly and it's a shame. Well, and it was but- almost like a, it, it wasn't, it was, it was meant in a very affectionate and almost in an admire, admiring way. I remember mm-hmm. distinctly people being like, they would make comments to me about it and me feeling a sense of pride. Mm, interesting. And then, wow, you can really hold your liquor. I'm like, yeah you know, that. Can we talk about that for a second? Because mm-hmm. I have uttered those same words, you know, it's almost like a badge of honor of how much you can drink, especially, um, it's especially curious as a woman to have that. Yeah. Right. Like you hear guys bragging like, yeah, yeah. You know, like 20 beer, like whatever. In fact, you know, I remember, <laughs> I remember very distinctly, you know, conversations throughout my twenties of like, you know, guy friends bragging about how much they've, you know, had to drink and how much they can handle. But also amongst women, it's strange that that's like a badge of honor. Why do you, why do you think that is Kat? Like, what is it's it? A, it's a competition thing. So it's like a, it's trying to, I mean, there's two levels of competition. There's competition between men and women. So I could, you, I can drink like a man. So I'm just as, I'm just as good as you. I'm just as tough mm-hmm. as you. I can deal with things, you know, 
Um, and it's a poison. So look at how much poison I can ingest and still like walk straight, get home and like how tough I am. Yes. So it's a competition between men and women to prove that. And then it's a competition between women. I feel because when a woman couldn't hold her liquor and you know, she got messy, it was like, look at this broad considered weak. Yeah. So it's very much so messed up. It is, but it's, and it, it is. But it's because alcohol is such a societal, it's so, you know, it's so um, accepted Mm -hmm. that it was, and because it, especially in those formative years where number one, our brains aren't even fully developed. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, what a crime to sell to, to, to children, you know, older children in their late teens, early twenties who aren't even able yet to integrate consequence into their actions. And it just be it. So it, it's this lack of uh, self identity mixed with, you know, a drug mixed with a lot of social change. So it's just a very, I think all that stuff combined leads to that sense of, well, look what I look at to your point, look how tough I am. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you, so that day when your daughter said, mommy, I know where you hide your wine. Can you kind of expand on that and A, um, what that evoked in you and what that meant to you, but also the process, like how did you go about deciding that you were going to quit? Was it just like cold turkey? Was it in that moment? Was there a process? Like what did that look like for you? So it was the days, so she had said that probably a month before I completely quit. And I remember feeling really embarrassed and shameful. And it's actually, it's interesting because, are you familiar with uh, Lauren McEwen? Yes. So she wrote, We Are the Luckiest. I don't, I I hope I say her last name right. But she wrote, We Are the Luckiest. And it's one of the books, and it answers your second part of your question. It's one of the books that I read when I really was thirsty, (laughs) pun intended, for uh, information around the role of alcohol, not just in society, but in women's lives, mother's lives. Um, and she talks a lot about the shame around it because for an average person, even for a, like a dad, you know, there's these, there's these stereotypical roles that we have. And the mom at the end of the day is meant is, is seen as being the soft place for a child to land they're the unconditional love. They carried the child. Uh, they have all this, you know, this maternal energy in their cells. So when that person makes the decision to drink, to get drunk or drink to blackout, you know, maybe that's not necessarily like a decision, but drink to numb it's, there's a lot of shame in it. Why do I, why do I need to escape this situation? what my look at these beautiful children I have and they look at me with such you know hope and love and adoration and admiration and I'm modeling what it means to be a mom and a woman and this is what I'm showing them so there was some shame around it I think for sure especially because I didn't grow up seeing it so it was very much a stark contrast when I took a step back and looked at it from the outside. You know, I didn't see that growing up and I'm so grateful for that. And my mom, in fact, would often say when I would drink and, and get drunk, she'd be like, where did you come from? You know, this isn't how we, we did it. And I mean, that's, that's, that's not, she, and she didn't mean it in a judgmental way. She, I think she just genuinely was curious, like, why are you drinking? And, and I couldn't answer that for, for a long time. And I didn't need to because everyone drinks in society. So you don't need to answer for it. Everyone does it. So who cares? So I think it was a lot of, it was, it evoked a sense of embarrassment and shame and, oh God, what am I teaching her? And, and also because I, I started to ask myself, why do I want this glass of wine? And often the answer was because I want to relax and detach a bit. And that to me was the most that was very startling for me. Why do I need to detach from reality in which I've got these two beautiful little babies, a husband I love more than anything and, you know, a career I'm passionate about. What, what is it? 
So then it was shortly after her fourth birthday that, and we'd had a party here and, you know, I was feeling super anxious the day after I'd had some drinks. I'm like, you know what? I'm done. And that was January 11th. I had ordered a book that sober curious term was being thrown around a lot at the time. And I had somehow managed, I'd stumbled upon um, Quit Like a Woman by Holly Whitaker. I believe Melissa Wood Heath, she's a, you know, she's, she's a fitness instructor. She has an app and she's an influencer and stuff in New York. And she posted this book. And for some reason, I didn't know much about it. I was like, yeah, that looks, I, I should read something like that. So I bought it. And within the first couple of pages, I'm like, I was very, I was very torn because I'm like, there's no going back from this, mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I'm going to have to say goodbye. And I was actually pretty reluctant at first. I'm like, well, I don't know forever or even for like a year. So basically the way I approached it was, I'm just going to try this on and see how it feels. I'm not, because I find, you know, this is a personal observation, but also one with patients is that when you introduce or the prospect of introducing a permanent change is very daunting. It's scary. And can I actually do it? And what if I fail? Then I I might as well not even do it. So I just went one day at a time. Let's see how I feel in this new way of thinking and being. And then I just became thirsty for more resources. So I read Holly's book. Then I read Laura, uh, Laura McEwen's Uh, We're the luckiest. Then I read another one. Her name's Catherine too, but I forget her last name. And you know, some of these, some of their, and I'll, 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 I'll provide a little bit of a disclaimer about these books. Some of the stories, some of the, the, the experiences that these women share are extreme and they can be like, some of them, I even found myself being like, whoa, that is a really wild story around their, about getting drunk and something crazy happening involving their kids. Like it was stuff that I couldn't necessarily relate to verbatim, but it was actually very useful to me because I thought to myself, Oh, I really wouldn't want to get there. You know? So it was almost enough for me to say like, it, you know, it was, it, it was two pronged in that I could, I could really relate to a lot of the stuff that they had talked about early on in their drinking. I learned a lot about how society has, conditioned us to just accept it women have been very specifically marketed to around the consumption of alcohol the lobbyist groups have pretty much taken you know have dipped their toe and actually you know immersed themselves entirely into the government to advocate you know for the sale of it and not now but over the last number of years it actually creating its own subculture of mummy wine time or mummy wine culture or whatever it is now it's mummy marijuana or mummy dope and weed and like oh my god age myself by saying dope um <laughs> god. but you know what i'm saying so there's now there's all these subcultures of for for moms and i was totally a part of that too you know like i do little videos of myself having a glass of wine babies in bed but the thing, it's like anything though with social media too. It's like, and, and when you're engaging with other women, it's like, it's all well and good in the moment, but you, when you go home, nothing has changed. Things are actually worse because now you feel like crap and there's a whole cascade of things that happens from, and everyone looks very different. And you may be listening to this thinking, well, that's not me. And it may not be, and, and I'm happy for you, but I also think that any relationship is worth examining and worth being really honest with yourself about in that in and asking yourself, does this relationship person habit substance get me closer to who I want to be as a person? That should be your number one priority. And then your subsequent roles, you know, wife, mother. And I can promise you that the answer is always no. I don't know anyone who's like, I'm a much better person. You might be, might be a much better person in the moment when you're drinking, but you're not after. And there's always so much regret involved in it that I can promise you that most people are not going to, are going to realize that, right? That they're, that they're not their best selves when they drink. I find this whole conversation really like a bunch of things. It makes me sad. It makes me intrigued. It inspires me. And I grieve at the same time. And, you know, because I see it in, I see it, I see it in like friend groups. I see it online. I see it and I see it in family. Like I just, I see it. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And this idea of like the mommy wine culture and 
again, I just want to reiterate the fact that you from the outside would not have been perceived as an alcoholic. And I'm not saying that you were an alcoholic. I'm just saying like from the outside, most people would look at you having a couple of glasses of wine to relax in the evening as like totally quote unquote normal. Mm -hmm. And they would not deem that to be a problem. Um, nor would they say, oh, you know, like th th it just wouldn't be a problem to them because it's become the norm. However, you are saying that it was not serving you. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, yeah, society may deem your consumption or your habit to have been quote unquote normal. And it's even celebrated amongst, you know, certain cultures and, and communities online, especially in the this like mommy wine culture. However, you were saying it was a problem for you and your intuition was telling you it was not in alignment. And I have deep respect for that. The other thing too, is that alcohol is, yeah, it's, it, you and I can both relate to this idea and everybody listening can relate to this. Maybe, maybe not. The current Western medical model is very much it's, in a lot of ways, it's black and white without much nuance allowed. So mm -hmm. you go into say have a blood work have blood work done, but you also go in with some symptoms. Let's use thyroid for for example. So you go in, you know maybe you're having a little bit of hair loss, maybe your skin's dry, uh, you're low energy, your sleep's crap, you have no libido, and you get some blood work done. Well, you know it looks like it could be your thyroid, but your thyroid's totally fine. Okay, okay, well off you go. Wait, that's it. Yeah, you're normal. Go ahead. So it's like it's the 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 parameters around what is considered normal. The bar is so incredibly low. Hmm. And I've just been realizing this for so long and I don't want to be normal. Like I don't want a normal life. I don't want a normal existence. I don't want to go from coffee to wine every day being like is it time for the kids to go to bed yet? And that goes into, you know, my uh, my my husband's attitude and vision around parenting too, and what the family dynamic looks like. And some days are easier than others. Sure. But I didn't want that. I didn't want that. And so I think I, I've, I, this isn't to take away from, you know, addiction and I wouldn't, you know, while I don't think it's necessarily important to um, diagnose specifically, in order to take action or whatever, I think it's also, it's a product of what society has deemed to be normal versus how we feel and our unique experience of life, mm -hmm. which speaks to, again, like going in with symptoms and saying, well, you know, on paper, you're fine. Sure. But how do I feel in my unique experience? And it's not good. So that's something also to, to consider for your, for everybody listening, you know, maybe everything is normal and on paper, but inside, and like you said, Mariska, intuitively, if something feels off, if something doesn't feel like it's the right fit for you, dig in, dig into that, because there's usually something really amazing that comes out of it. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't come with its own set of discomfort, which it does. It, yeah. it definitely, it definitely does. I have a, yes, yeah, such a good point. There's a, a Scottish proverb that goes, they speak of my drinking but they never speak of my thirst. And mm -hmm. if I think of like my relationship with alcohol, it was kind of similar in that when I went away to university, I went to school my first year of university in England. And so the drinking age was lower. And so I was 18, you know, partying in clubs where I had no business being mm -hmm. as a very naive little girl, teenage girl. My parents were quite strict growing up and I was barely allowed to go to a high school dance. So to then, you were like, uh, you were just letting loose <laughs> to then go to England and go party in London, this huge city. And, oh man. And the girls that I hung out with, we called ourselves the posse and I love them dearly. You know, one of them was a model and tall, gorgeous woman. And I think it was through her connections that she got us somehow. It was like this guy that she was seeing anyways, Long story short, we got into these places. We got on the guest list, the VIP list in some of these clubs. And I mean, <laughs> I saw things that, and was exposed to stuff at a very early age that I probably should not have been. And thank God my angels were around me. <laughs> and I had, you know, like my intuition was very strong. And it was like, don't go there. Don't do this. Mm. But I saw a lot of, you know, 
I have friends who weren't quite as lucky and got themselves in some crazy situations, but it was always like this thrill. It was this thrill. And it was, you know, thinking of that quote and thinking like, what was the motivation? Like, Mm. well, I had, you know, I grew up in a really, I was, my dad out of protection for me was quite strict with allowing me to go do things because he knew (laughs) he was, you know, a grown man. He knew like, you know, and, um, was just trying to protect me. But as soon as I was able to, I just like rebelled and just did whatever I wanted. And there was this thrill of freedom and living. And when I think of like, you know, that quote, they speak of my drinking, but they never speak of my thirst. And I think of like the motivation behind drinking. It's like with any addiction, you know, there's a numbing out, but there's also this like freedom Hmm. that, you know, right. And this like liberation of like, like you even said, like there are things that you would have done drinking, like under the influence that you would never necessarily have done or said sober. And um, there was this like, like for me in my early twenties, cause then I, I like rarely drink now, but my body just hates it. It exacerbates my autoimmune condition, like my psoriasis. It just makes it go crazy. It, my body just hates it. It's like, is this is a toxin? This does not serve me. That said, like, you know, the, the feeling of having like I, my drink of choice is actually tequila. It's one of the few alcohols that I feel my body actually doesn't mind, mm. which is still ironic because it is a po- poison. But, you know, to have a shot of tequila, not a shot as in like down it, but like to have a sit and sip a nice 100% agave tequila was kind of like my thing. But it's still doesn't serve me. And I often, like there was a time when um, I was going through a really stressful time with the collapse of a business, my business partner, and it was so stressful. And I found myself drinking red wine in the evenings. And I was Mm. like, huh. And I just remember that that allowed me to show up. It allowed me to put away the stress and to be there, like be a fun mom. And it wasn't long. I think it lasted for about a week and a half. And then I was just like, this is bullshit and this isn't serving me. And also because addiction runs in my extended family and I have seen family members destroyed by alcoholism, I was just like, no, and this is not, I'm not doing this. And I realized that I was using it to pacify myself because it was so hard to be in my life in that moment. Like there was so much pain that I was feeling and so much Mm. stress and anxiety and it was giving me an out so that I could you know, be fun for my son versus just allowing my son to see me in my pain and, um, you know, and, and get the help and support that I needed, which I ended up doing. But you know what I mean? Like we, there's this thirst, whether it's a thirst for escape or a thirst for thrill or like, or more. And I wonder like this thirst for more. And like, it's almost like the mommy wine culture is like a trauma adaptation, you know, just like, women we're just wanting more and you know them and wanting to find more meaning and more connection and more fulfillment and it's like we're palliating this sadness yes and it's also like a I mean I agree with you entirely and I also think it's worth acknowledging the I, I you know I don't know how much alcohol can be used in a healthy way but I if there was a way I think you described it. And that's very much how I feel about some prescription drugs. You know, it's meant for a very fixed amount of time while you need a little support. uh, And then you take yourself off of it. Hmm. Um, And so, but there's, and and I applaud your self-awareness around it and why you did use it and what you were using it for. And then your ability to see what, you know, to see the the potential downfall of it and to take yourself out of it. And, you know, I, I once saw this quote and it was something to the effect of, um, I, how does it go? It's like, uh, I am able to say no to the first drink, but I'm unable to say no to the second. And that's really rang true with me. And that's, you know, literal and figurative. And I just saw patterns that for myself of it just would amp up regardless of how I kind of tiptoed back into it. And so I think from a mummy culture perspective, 
it's very true. You know, it's, it's a, tr it's a tool to deal with trauma of our lives changing, doing a complete 180. This little human relies on us for the most part. And this is a sweeping generalization. So that's why I say for the most part, dads continue on their lives as if nothing has really changed, especially in the first, you know, six to 12 months. So it can be a very lonely time. And when you have a drink, especially in the, 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 you know, presence of other moms who get what you're going through, it lowers your inhibitions. It makes you feel more relaxed. And often these moms are new friends. So this also helps to alleviate some of that, you know, pressure, social anxiety. Yep. And, and then it just, and then, you know, ultimately it, it ends up snowballing in my opinion, into this wildly accepted practice of using it every day as a way to escape your life. Mm. And, you know, that's where the thirst is. That's where the thirst, and it's, it's very layered. And that's a whole other conversation about how becoming a mom is, is such a, it's such a blessing and it's such a challenge. And especially when you have a well-established career and when you've got other interests and you've got big audacious goals for yourself and your life, a lot of that feels like it's put on the back burner and that you're put second, you know, and sometimes I will actually even say to my kids, like what you want is important, but what I want is important too. And right now I want to do, I want to sit here and eat my food, mm -hmm. my food, not yours, my food. And, or sometimes I don't want to do what you want me to do and that's okay. And so I think it's, there's so many layers to it. And the, the, one of the biggest reasons why women turn to alcohol is that it doesn't take a lot of time. Like you don't have to, because that's the biggest complaint of moms and parents is we don't have time. You have time to have a glass it's of a wine. Quick fix. You, quick fix. You can go about your day and your business and get everything, get everything done in the laundry and dinner and all the rest of it until you can't. But you know, opening a book, listening to, I mean, listening podcasts, you can multitask, but li like opening a book and actually doing the work it's asking you to do or taking the course that that forces you to look inward or meditating the 20 minutes that's required to start changing some of those, you know, subconscious patterns or uh, doing the work to heal your nervous system so that you're not like, you know, walking around yeah. in a trauma, trauma state or even right? fixing some of the nutritional imbalances that are created throughout the yeah. course of that pregnancy and breastfeeding and, and just, you know, living in survival mode. So yeah, it's, it's very, it's what, like who, why, who wants to do all that other work? when you can just pour yourself a glass, a glass of, rose of wine. Yeah. So, and that was one that, you know, I got, I got mixed up into that too. I started writing consistently for uh, a, a mommy group blog here. And very quickly I realized it wasn't going to be my group of people um, for a number of reasons. Is this the Christmas party story? Cause I want you to share yeah. that. You don't have to say the name, but can you share the story? So as a guest blogger for this blog, this mommy group, it, it's a pretty well-known group. Um, I was invited to their Christmas party and which you had to pay for the tickets to go anyway. And so we, so I went, I didn't know anybody. And so of course I drank a lot um, because I was uncomfortable and um, I drank and then pretty much the entire restaurant cleared out. I'm like, where did everybody go? And everyone was outside smoking weed and it was probably like 50 moms. And I realized even then that was way before I decided to give up alcohol. I was probably like my daughter, my first daughter was probably about 16 months old. And, and it was, I just remember being thinking to myself, doesn't, this doesn't seem like a healing or restorative space. And I just don't belong here. And that's after years of using alcohol to belong here, <laughs> you know? So it wasn't as though I couldn't navigate that space I just it felt off to me it didn't feel quite right and again it took me a couple of years to figure out why it didn't feel quite right um but the, very much the the culture of that particular mummy group is have your coffee in the morning if you need to splash a little bit of some rum in there you should do so you deserve it fast forward oh early afternoon you want to meet your friends for a cocktail while the kids watch your iphone on the floor of a pub go for it great idea now they're in bed. Okay. Let's meet up and have some cocktails and smoke some weed. And all of it was, you know, very, not just accepted, but encouraged. 
and children were perceived and they're spoken about very much as nuisances and a thorn in our side. And, you know, these little things that just need to be shut up and placated and thrown in front of a screen and who cares what you're feeding them. You made it through the day. You're doing good mom. And you know what? I've got three kids. I work for myself. I don't have a salary. I don't have any type of, you know, EI or CPP contributions. My husband's the same. We don't have, I don't have any family here. We don't have any childcare other than the school that my husband has built for them, which was a ginormous investment for us on a number of different levels. So like I have, I have very little space for excuses around the way that we speak about our kids and especially through the mommy culture. I won't pretend to judge, you know, or try to judge what people's circumstances are. Everybody's experience is very different, but I, I really, I really, really dislike the way that it has become so popular to speak so horribly about our children. I I don't like that. And it just seems to be all tied into the same conversation. Can we talk about this for a second? Because I think you bring up a really good point. There's, I remember reading, I think it was in, was it in Vanity Fair or was it, I think it was in Vanity I Fair. There was I don't a- read any propaganda, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> this was, this was before all of that. I'm just well, joking. I don't know. I'm pretty know. sure it's all but... been propaganda forever. We're just <laughs> exactly. realizing it. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's true. There was an article called The Reluctant Mother. And I just, no, it was on Time. It was Time Magazine. Anyways, whatever. This was a while ago. And and I remember, like, what I remember from that, it's, I mean, there's, you can take many different things from that title. But the point that I took away was the fact that it's not that we don't want to be mothers. It's that, it's like, what has, I think, almost been popularized through humor with these movies like Bad Moms or like, what's the wild, like, Women Gone Wild or like, you know, like, <laughs> through this, like, oh God. And even on uh, Instagram, there's this account. I won't say what it is. I'm not trying to shame this woman. I'm just trying to make a point that there is this, there's to what you're saying, to your point, that there is, we are speaking of our pain and we're trying to make light of it in a humorous way. And it's not that these women regret becoming mothers necessarily. It's that the way that our culture is structured it a lot of women end up losing themselves mm-hmm. their needs are not tended to mm-hmm. they m- maybe you know like it's all great and wonderful when you're pregnant for the first time i remember when i, I i'm just going to speak from my own experience because i'm not trying to put anything on anybody but i remember the reality of being a mom and being a working mother and all of the things and still trying to connect with my husband and like all of the things that we carry yeah. as working yeah. moms, that's very different, that reality of that, than when I was pregnant and yeah. dreaming and, and making yeah. my nursery and doing all these things and dreaming of it. Like even things I would say like about parenting, well, well I would never do that. And now I do it. <laughs> right. You know, like it's once you get in it and you feel the weight and the pressure of doing it, quote unquote, perfectly, because you don't want to screw your kid up. And you just want them to be happy and you just want to protect them and you want the best for them. So you feel all this pressure. And then you add the mummy guilt mm-hmm. of like, then, cause you see your quote unquote failings. And I say quote unquote failings cause they're not necessarily, but we have yeah, this tremendous, yeah, we have this yeah. tremendous judgment on ourselves. And then, you know, like you have all the pressures for work and then you're doing all the emotional labor for the most part and, and most stereotypical heterosexual couples um, women are doing the emotional labor. And by that, I mean, organizing the family and keeping yeah. track of everything and the meals and the housework and like all the things and the play dates and whatever. And then you have work and then you're still supposed to have this like incredible relationship with your husband. And so many women are drinking to escape the, the judgments and the pressure and like all of these things. And it's celebrated through humor, through these movies and through the accounts online and, you know, they come together in solidarity of with like of their pain. It's, you know, well, and, I, and I don't think it's I listen, I, I think humor is important. You yes. Know? And I think it's I think, so important. I think and, and I don't. That's why these to, accounts are successful. Yeah. And I don't want to say that it's like, I don't want to shy away from it because I think that I don't think humor should be taken seriously. 
you know, and I like I saw Ricky Gervais in an interview not long ago, and he's like, I wish people would stop saying things like that's offensive and say what they really mean, which is I feel offended because we're not responsible for how each other feels. Okay. So, and then, so, and, and especially with comedy, like if you can, there's so many things anyway. So I, I, and I think there's some, there's some validity in that. It, it relieves some pressure. You don't feel alone. You laugh. So you release endorphins. Like, I think there's some really it's a way to talk about the elephant in the room. Yeah. Yeah. Without, and, and, and this is this, like the mommy wine call that's like our dependency on whatever, if, whether it's online shopping, alcohol, drugs, sex, it's it's the elephant in the room which is yeah. pain which is pain well and i you know a couple things is that there has been i women have had probably the most drastic cultural shift in terms of our role mm-hmm. um because we went from being you know okay we're at home to okay now you can enter the workforce to now being like we'll now do it all like you, you have to, you, not just one, not just, you got to do them all. But I think that one, we, I also want, I want to say that and acknowledge that, but I don't want to create a sense of disempowerment because that's, I think, a ginormous issue in today's society across a number of different topics. And that's this victimization and this feeling of, you know, I have no, I have no, uh, you know, sovereignty over who I am in my experience of my life. Well, that's not true. In fact, you're the only person who has it. And so I think there's a lot of disempowering narratives and that is done by way of language. So, but there's a distinction between humor and I think there's nothing wrong with that. But then there's the consistent way that we speak about ourselves as moms, ourselves as humans and our children. And children are not stupid and they pick up on the language used. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and I think that the other thing too, is that this, this struggle to be perfect is not, is, is, it's not attainable because I bet you half the people couldn't even explain what, or describe what perfection would look like as a parent or as a mom or a wife or whatever. But I think that that's also, you have to realize that perfection as a parent does not serve your children either. Exactly. It's important to make mistakes. It's important to show emotion. And, you know, now I'm sure you could look back of when you were feeling really stressed. I don't know how old your son was at the time, but often these experiences that we go through as a person are wonderful learning and teaching moments for our children. This is how I'm feeling. And it's also really important to communicate all of that too, because your child is egocentric and will make it mean it about something about them, even if it's about work or, you know, something very abstract, a child will think there's something wrong with me. And so opening up that communication, I, I mean, I had a moment this morning where I was really grumpy about something and we, I load everybody in the car and back into the garage. I'm like, I stopped this and you know what, guys, I'm so sorry for, I really am sorry for being such a grump this morning. I said, you know, it has nothing to do with you. I love you guys. I, it, and my daughter goes, I know it had to do with the dog. <laughs> no, you know what? It didn't even have to do with the dog. It has to do with me. The dog yeah. doesn't know what he's doing. You, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's not, nobody is responsible for my reactions and my emotions, but me. So I clear it up. A perfect mom would never have done that in the first place, but a perfect mom doesn't have that opportunity for a teachable moment for her children. 100%. And that's also yeah. what I want to show to my daughter. And my mom and I have already talked about this, so I feel I can share this, but you know, in a lot of ways, my mom and I had a codependent relationship growing up and it was almost overshared. So I felt very much a responsibility to make sure she was okay. I have been, I work very hard to ensure that my daughter doesn't take responsibility for how I feel. Mm-hmm. It's not her job. It's not her job yeah. to take care of me. It's not her job to take care of her brother. It's her job to take care of herself. We will take care of her, but it's her job to have fun and be a kid. And so I think it's it's like, there's so many layers to being a mother and there's so many ways that it shows up as trauma um, or we can in- perceive it as trauma or maybe even not because a lot of the stuff is subconscious. Um, but this is where I think the, the marketing component of alcohol has been so successful 
because it's just created this, it's created such a, an audience, a consumer market. I don't know if I, I hope it will change, but I don't know if, I don't know if it will, to be honest. Um, but I'm hopeful. And basically it's just, it's, it's in my, my belief that there is greater enjoyment. There's more fulfillment, more pure joy on the other side of alcohol or any substance. And it can take a while to get there, especially when you have very close friends or close family who use alcohol as a, a form of connection. Like it's really hard to distance yourself from that, but it is possible. And I think the more that, you know, you take individual step, steps, groups will start to also transition how they view their relationship with it and relationship with it and others. And, but it is a very strong, uh, it's a very strong undercurrent. That's for sure. It is. And, you know, I think the beauty of this conversation is that, A, we're not trying to judge anybody here. We're, we're pointing out that we do believe that this is a problem, right? But there's an invitation to create awareness and for inquiry. And well, and I would also say, and I, and I, cause I, I love to be a little bit provocative <laughs> is that if this is a triggering conversation for you, you should explore that. Yes. If you're thinking to yourself something to the effect of, well, that's not me. I can have one and I'm totally fine. Okay. Uh, that's great. And I don't, I don't think you're going to like, you know, speed up any type of chronic illness doing something like that. If you're, but there's a, if you're also thinking, wow, she must've really had a problem. That's not me. I can binge drink on the weekends. I mean, it may even be, you have one drink a night and it's no big deal, but if you're triggered by what I'm saying, if you're triggered by this conversation and feeling judged, that is being manifested by you and you alone. Yeah. I'm not saying anyone is bad or wrong for drinking alcohol. I'm saying like most ways in society, we have been led astray and led to believe that these things are normal and okay and healthy and acceptable and augment the human experience. And that is just not my personal experience. And I would argue that it's probably not the experience for most people, especially moms. Um, but yeah, I interrupted you, but I think like, it's it, that, it, like, I, I'm, I think it's, it's, uh, it's an, it's a very, um, it's an opportunity to re-examine things, especially when you get triggered. Cause it's obvious there's usually something unresolved if you're feeling like, you know, something you yeah. find can make sense of. Yeah, exactly. I agree with you. So let me ask you this. People are curious. Okay, so you made the decision and you quit drinking. And we've talked a lot about like, you know, why people are using alcohol, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, to de-stress, to feel free, to feel thrilled, to relax, to unwind. Um, what did you do then instead? What did you do? Like, what was it? Like, oh, yeah. I know, I know personally what I do <laughs> and trust me, there are days, especially when everything was happening with the pandemic and blah, blah, like all, you know, like everyone yes. was having a trauma response. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, you feel that like, Oh, I just want to have a drink, but I would always stop myself because I'd be like, I mean, not always, sometimes I would definitely, you know, especially if I was with girlfriends or whatever, but always afterwards, my body's like, ah, I hate it. <laughs> like it never feels good. And yeah. yeah. So I know what I do. A, I have to be in my feelings. Like yeah. I always like, it's like, okay, well, what, why do I want to drink? Well, I'm really just wanting to have a drink to feel relaxed. What else can I do <laughs> yeah. that is supporting my health and well-being that will help me relax versus having a drink, which is not serving me? I'm curious what you did. Um, I got, I, I got, I, I, I kept myself busy. I made a list of things that, uh, that I, I knew would, uh, get me closer to the person that I wanted to be. And that's like, that's a, a mantra of mine of the last number, not last couple of years is will this decision that I'm making get me closer to the person I want to be I don't know if you guys have midday squares down there but 
uh, midday squares. Sometimes I ask myself that, like, is this midday square going to get me closer? <laughs> there are these like little chocolate peanut butter things that I, they're like, they're delicious, but so uh, I digress. Um, so I try to ask myself, I, I was asking myself that a lot, you know, how would having a drink get me closer to the person that I truly want to be? And the answer is always no. Um, I, so I set myself up with actionable steps and kept a list. So it was the books that I, I had mentioned I'd reached, I'd reach for a book. I'd turn on a podcast. Uh, I may have thrown on like a TV show or something, something familiar, something light, something funny, but to your point, I think a big part of it for me was to just sit in the shit. And I mm-hmm. say that sometimes to, to feel the feelings, you just to have feel to feel feelings. it sometimes. And the thing is, is that often when we push that stuff away, it's like physics, right? Whatever mm. you push or whatever you apply pressure to will push. What you resist, people. what you resist like persists. And so I thought, you know, if, and, and it becomes, it builds up and it snowballs. And so if you just stop and you turn and you face it, and sometimes you don't even know what you're facing. Sometimes it's just this feeling of being completely unsettled and icky like sometimes like uh last night I hadn't like I because I'm just I'm using this as a uh an example because it's most you know recent point of reference where I just had this icky feeling come over me and that's when I typically would have had a glass of wine two years two years and two months ago and I'm like I stopped I'm like what am I feeling icky about dinner I was late getting dinner ready my husband wasn't home from work yet I had a ton of my own work that I had to do. Uh, You know, there's a couple other things. And so I just sat and I let these thoughts and worries roll over me. Are they going to kill me? Nope. But sometimes your nervous system says yes, right? So your nervous system doesn't know. Your subconscious mind thinks it's going to kill you. (laughs) Yes. But that's where you have to, yeah. And sit in it and acknowledge it because it's the unacknowledged and the repressing of those feelings that really creates like this huge monster. So uh, sitting in it. Can I say something there? Do you remember Dr. Epstein? Do you remember Dr. E? Yes. Dr. Paul Epstein. So I was a mentor, a mentee of his. And I remember he used to always say that addiction is a substitute for legitimate suffering. Hmm. And meaning... And in many ways, the addiction is actually so much worse than the suffering that we're trying to escape. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, versus like if we could just be in the feeling and feel the feeling and allow it to like a wave to kind of like pass over us. It's kind of like a contraction in yeah. labor. 90s, there's actually a study on this where it's like if you can just be in the feeling for 90 seconds, the intention, like the intensity of it will dissipate. Like you can do anything for 90 seconds. Yeah. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. If you can just sit in that feeling, like, like that ickiness that you were feeling, right. Or like the pain or the stress, like if you can just be in it, allow it to be in its fullness because energy or emotion is just energy in motion. And if we can allow it to just kind of like wash through us just for 90 seconds, set a timer, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, and after that, do what you need to do, like dance it out, like whatever, but just like feel it. And Versus the addiction, which like, you know, like grabbing the drink or smoking the joint or buying the thing or whatever it might be like that pain that's inflicted from that. It's, it's almost like it, um, compounds. Oh, right? well, yes, definitely. And, and I it think becomes, a, it, becomes it becomes like yeah. worse than the original offense. Well, and this is why I think there are so many, I think that's why, um, from a societal perspective is. I'm sure we all know of people and maybe even ourselves of things that seem to have come out of left field, like so-and-so is breaking up or so-and-so is actually has an addiction or, you know, so-and-so is filing for bankruptcy. And it's like, it seems like it's out of left field because maybe, you know, you don't know them on an intimate level, but the thing is, is that it builds up and there's all these, it's accommodative behaviors to make up for, to cover up. And there's only so long that you can continue that way before cracks, you know, start to show. And I think that's, that's also one reason why I needed to do it too, because there's only so long I could have continued that way and it could have gone south real quick. Um, And I, I feel like, especially during the time of COVID where there, you know, was so much uncertainty and, 
uh, you know, lots, lots of rabbit holes. And I just felt like I needed to be clear of thought. Um, and so critical thinking, critical thinking and clear headed. (laughs) You can't, you can't like, you can't, uh, you know, you can't form a proper opposition when you're shrouded, which is another reason why I think the government likes to sell it back to us. It keeps the population numb and dumb. And that is not a judgment because here's the thing is that we are, we're all, we're, we feel like the powers that be are meant to guide us and help us. And so when they sell us the poison and the cure, it's very, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, cognitive dissonance. And it's very hard to figure out where that all lies on a, you know, on a continuum. And so I, I really think that we've we've been done a huge disservice by way of the lobbyist groups and our healthcare practitioners and the government in terms of how alcohol has integrated its way into society. And um, and I think that in order to be set yourself up for success, you do have to create a plan. It's like anything. So create a plan. What was what is my what is somebody who is a wonderful, calm, grounded mother. What does she do on a daily basis? What would that 2.0 version of myself do? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. She exercises, she gets sunlight. She, you know, she nourishes herself from a dietary and maybe a supplemental perspective. She, you know, she is expanding and growing her mind and self-awareness. She's not, you know, heading to LCBO for her fourth bottle of wine. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just, that's me, you know, so that's, and that's where I, that's where I landed. And so there's, and your, your thing may be different. A lot of people need connection. Like the last couple of years have breeded this huge sense of isolation. And so maybe your thing is you need connection. So go and join a sports club or go and pick up a, a new hobby enroll yourself in some sort of, you know, further education and learning. It's keeping the mind active and keeping the, you know, keeping our human connection alive, which I think is really, really important and uh, doing so in a way that's uplifting each other too. Right. So hundred percent. Yeah. Kat, I feel like we need a part two. <laughs> Can you, I'm asking you right now, like for real, come back and we'll do a part two. Cause I really want to talk about kids and the idea of, you know, like remembering the sacred family unit and talk about the school that you and Adrian have started. And there's just like a whole beautiful conversation to have there. Um, I would love to. And it's, it's a passion of ours and it's, it was born of a place. It was a born, it was born from a place where Adrian and I were like, we have no sweet clue what we're doing. Like as parents, we have no idea. There's no user manual with this kid. Like, I don't know what to do with she's doing, you know, having a tantrum, I'm having a tantrum. What's, you know, we don't know. (laughs) And then, and then, so we just, out of personal and interest in necessity, we started reading. And then after we started putting together all of the information so that we could, I could access it in a really easy way. And then after we did that, we're like, there's got to be other parents who feel like they have no idea what the hell's going on. So we started teaching it to other parents and, and then we integrate that into the school. So I love to come back and talk about it because I think it's really, um, this is where a lot of the stress around parenthood and motherhood comes in. I don't know what I'm doing. Therefore I must be really shitty at it. Therefore I, you know, I'm a bad mom, I'm a bad parent, yeah. I'm a bad person. So yes, let's talk about that another time. Amazing. Okay. And okay. for those who want to learn more about you, where can they find you? Um, I, will, um, I will put, actually, I'll put the links in the show notes below, but just okay. quickly, where's the best place for them to talk with you? Is it Instagram? Is it email? Yeah. Instagram, uh, that's where you'll find my thought dump. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm at the Natural Cat uh, on Instagram. Our school is the Academy of uh, Enlightened Minds uh, or Academy of Enlightened Minds. And that's also the website of our school here in Toronto. And you'll find all of my information about how I practice, where I practice and all that on my Instagram as well. This is such an amazing, important conversation. And thank you for your candidness and your vulnerability and your leadership. And yeah, just being really outspoken about it. I just think it's, I hope and pray that those listening found this healing and provocative and perhaps the jumping point for them to do further inquiry or support a friend who might need to do further inquiry. So yeah, thank you so so much, And you know, I think one of my roles is, 
you know, somebody once said this to me and it was, he was a mentor of mine and I want to repeat it because I think it's worth repeating or it's worth saying. And that's, I am not here to make other people feel comfortable. I'm not here to make myself feel comfortable. I, I, my, my husband is like the king of being okay, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's how I show up for my patients and my friends. I want to push everyone out of their comfort zone again, including myself. And I am here for support. If you feel like there's something that you want to explore, I'm here to support you through it. I'm here for a little bit of tough love as well. But that's what I want this. I, if not for these tough, tough conversations and introspection, what is life all about? So I appreciate you exactly. so much, Marissa, for like to, for teasing this out and allowing me the space to share my story. And, and, and I think it's a very, very important conversation. And uh, like you said, I hope it's one that can be furthered. So we'll talk again. I'm sure we will. Oh, okay. Thank love you, girl. You. We'll talk, talk to you soon. soon. Love you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nest Podcast. If you're a woman who's interested in reclaiming your health and well-being holistically, then I'd love to work with you. My passion is helping women reconnect with their intuition and sacred feminine blueprint so they can heal their bodies. If any of the topics from this episode resonated with you and you'd like to know more about how you can work with me, then check out my programs via my website link below in the show notes or pop over to my Instagram to say hello. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.